Amen. Amen. So uh, some of you know this, but sometime in 1820, Thomas Jefferson went to a bookshelf and he pulled down a copy of the King James Version Bible and in his hand he had scissors and some glue. And what was happening in his heart is he was disturbed by the religion of his day and some of the things that were taking place in his world and looking at the Bible and looking at some of the teaching of Jesus, it was really, really bothering him. Some of the things that Jesus taught, some of the things that Jesus said. So what he did is he sat down with the gospels, he took his knife, he took his glue, and he cut out whole sections of the Bible that he didn't like. Whole sections of the Bible that he found problematic. Whole sections of the Bible that didn't resonate well with him. And he pasted them into a new version of the Bible. This was commonly known as the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth or the Jefferson Bible, as some people called it. And here's what he said about this. He said, I've performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter, which is evidently his, Jesus's, and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. The result is an octavo of 46 pages of pure and unsophisticated religion. Jefferson felt like he knew what parts of the Bible were the diamonds and what parts of the Bible were the dunghill. And he was, he, he was the one that had the authority to pick and choose and decide what he wanted to embrace and what he didn't. So he ripped out any reference to the miracles or the supernatural, any reference to the resurrection accounts, any passage that portrayed Jesus as divine. Now, here's why, here's why I share that story with you, because we're about to approach a text in Revelation 2 as we look at these letters that Jesus has been writing to the churches. There are seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and Jesus is writing a letter to each church, and he's commending them in some ways, but he's also correcting or, or uh, rebuking them in some other ways. And, and the letter that we're looking at today, Jesus is going to say some very, very hard things. And there's going to come a time during the sermon that some point when you are going to want to do internally what Thomas Jefferson did. You're going to want to cut out a section or you're going to want to avoid internally a section of who Jesus is or what Jesus is saying. And I just want to ask you not to do that. Today, if you feel this urge to kind of bypass or, or move past what Jesus is saying to you, man, I just want to encourage you, don't do that. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're doubting, if you've got questions about Christianity, man, you don't need to look like us. You don't need to behave like us. You don't need to believe what we believe. You're really, really welcome here. But this is Jesus addressing his church today, people that belong to him. So where are we headed? Well, uh, Jesus is writing to the church at Thyatira. Now, th this is the longest letter that we have in Revelation 2 and 3 to these seven churches in modern-day Turkey, but it's to the least important, smallest city out of all seven churches. This church in Thyatira is not a well-known city. It's not an important city. In fact, it started out as a military garrison that would in many ways function as a, uh, as a defensive layer, a defensive protective gate so that any enemy forces that were coming in would actually have to go through this city before they could make their way to Pergamum. So it started out as a military garrison, and then over time, it became a city that was well-known, actually, for its trade center. Even though it was a small city, uh, bakers and, and various tanners and painters and tailors and potters and bronze makers, all of them would migrate to the city, and they would get inside of these trade guilds, and they would work together, and and from this city, all kinds of trade went out throughout the entire ancient world in the first century. In fact, if you remember in Acts 16, there's a woman named Lydia there, and she visits Philippi. And while in Philippi, she hears Paul the Apostle preach about Jesus, and it says that God opened up her heart to receive 
who God was, who, the tr- who Jesus was in his truth. And so she became a Christian. And actually, some scholars think that Lydia, sometime later in her life, traveled back home to Thyatira. She was from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. And some scholars think that she traveled all the way back to Thyatira and helped plant this church that Jesus is writing. Now, even though this city in Thyatira is not a well-known city, it's not a big city, it was kind of known for one thing. There was one thing that Thyatira was known for, and that was its trade guild. Uh, think like trade union, right? So trade guilds, and here's what was fascinating about these guilds. Every single person that had a trade would often be connected to a guild, and every guild had a patron deity that that guild would worship. So various deities, and the most pronounced uh, patron deity in this place was from the Bronze Makers Guild, and it was the sun god, God, uh, Apollos was his name, and that was kind of the well-known god that was worshipped, not just Zeus and other people, but Apollos was worshipped inside of this. So think about this, try to like insert yourself as a Christian in the first century in this context where to follow Jesus and say that Jesus is Lord, and also try to be in a trade guild where every year there's these festivals being held where you're going to sacrifice to pagan gods and and then there's going to be a kind of sexual immorality is going to start as a part of the party. So there'd be orgies and, and, and temple prostitutes and all these things. And so Christians in Thyatira are starting to wrestle with how do I stay faithful to Jesus? How do I stay committed to Jesus and also be inside of this trade guild where I'm invited to all of these festivals and parties and it's mandatory that I worship this patron deity. How do I say that Jesus is God while also being in this trade guild where I'm having to say that Apollos is God and make sacrifices to him and engage in sexual immorality? And so that was the wrestle of Christians in this, in this letter to Thyatira. And, and w- so look at what Jesus says to them because he wants to start by just commending them, just giving them kind of some encouraging commendation. So chapter two, verse 18, here we go. And to the angel of the church, And Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Remember, remember, who is the the well-known God worshipped in the most popular guild in Thyatira? It was the Bronze Maker Guild, and it was the sun god, Apollos. And Jesus, he writes to them, and his first words are, hey, I'm actually the son of God. I'm actually the one with eyes like a flame of fire. It's not Apollos that has flames of fire for eyes, it's me. And I'm the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus, just right out of the gate, what he's trying to do here is establish himself as the authority over the Christians in this city. Then he goes on, he says this in verse 19, he says, I know your works and your love and your faith and service and your patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. And I love this. He's saying, I just want to commend you. I want to encourage you in five things. The first is your love. I know your love. You have love for God and you have love for people. Now you remember the church at Ephesus, the, the thing that he said to them was, and you, you have theology and it's profound. You've got good works and you're enduring, but you don't have love. You've fallen out of love with me. And that, that's my big issue with, with you in Ephesus. He doesn't say that to the church at Thyatira. He actually says, hey, I want to commend you because you have love. Second thing he says is commending them for their faith. 
These are people that are holding fast to Jesus and the Christian faith in a context where it's very, very hard to follow Jesus faithfully as a Christian. He says, you have faith. Then he says, you have service. I want to commend you for your service. Literally in Greek, it's deacon acts. He's saying, you, you, do, you do the acts of deacons. You serve the church. You're servants to each other. So if you were to attend this church, the gospel hospitality in this church is amazing. Everybody serving each other all the time out of love for God and for each other. Then he says this, he says, your endurance, I know your endurance, and I'm thankful for that. Th th this was a place where to be, in a, to be a follower of Jesus and be in a trade guild meant that you had to make a hard decision at one point. Am I gonna continue to make money and grow my business, or am I gonna follow Jesus and probably be resigned to a life of poverty and a life where my business isn't gonna be as successful and I'll be marginalized from society? And these Christians, what they had done is many of them had endured and they had stayed faithful to Jesus. For some of them, that even meant being poor for the rest of their life so that they could continue to say, Jesus is Lord rather than Apollos. And then finally, the last thing Jesus wants to commend them for is their ministry multiplication. This is not a church that had a, a good run for the first few years and then died out in passion. This is a church that had a good run and then actually increased in their ministry, increased in their love, increased in their service to each other. So he, all that to say, if, if you were to visit Thyatira and be a part of this church, this is a really good church to be a part of. There's a lot to celebrate and there's a lot that Jesus wants to commend them on. And yet in the middle of all of this, there's something that Jesus has an issue with. There's something that Jesus wants to say to this church. And, and here's the point that I want you to see, that you can have all of those things. You can have love, and you can have faith, and you can have endurance, and you can have service, and you can continue to grow and multiply in your ministry as a follower of Jesus, and yet still miss one of the key things that Jesus wants from you. So what does Jesus say next? Well, he has a complaint about this church in Thyatira. There's something about them that's missing and off, and he has an issue with it. Look at it in verse 20, chapter two, verse 20. He says, but this I have against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus writes to this church and he says, there's a lot about you that I wanna celebrate, but here's my big problem. You actually tolerate that woman Jezebel, this prophetess who is teaching and seducing the church to live in ways that are incongruent with what it is to be a follower of Jesus. Now, some of you, you read that and you're like, this is again why I don't like the book of Revelation. You know, like, can you be a Christian and say that out loud? I don't like the, the book because it's confusing and weird and Jezebel sounds weird and I don't know what this is about. What is happening here? Well, here's what's happening. To understand what uh, Jesus is saying to this church through the Apostle John, you actually need to understand a little bit about some Old Testament history. And we read about this woman Jezebel. She was a real woman in the Old Testament in the time of uh, First Kings. So I know First Kings is like your favorite place to read in the morning. You're like, gotta get me some First Kings this morning and some coffee, and you love it. And so a lot of us, we're not familiar with this story because we just don't read whole sections of our Old Testament. Uh, if you grew up in church and you grew up in Sunday school, then the prophet Elijah Anyone? Nod your head. Elijah. Elijah. Some of you know that. Uh, uh, this is the time when Elijah was alive and living when Jezebel was alive. Who was Jezebel? 
Well, Jezebel was this, this pagan woman who was a terrifying, terrifying woman. She was so scary that she had this weird power over the people in her life to basically get them to do whatever she wanted. And even in the hearts of some of the most uh, fearless people, she could inflict fear in their hearts. She was ruthless. She was evil. She was just really, really terrifying person. And Jezebel actually married one of the kings over the people of God, one of the kings of Israel, King Ahab. Now, a little bit about King Ahab. King Ahab is the worst king in Israel's history. If you read the book of 1 Kings, then it's interesting because every time a new king comes to power, the very first sentence will sum up that king's life and his ministry, whether it was one of righteousness done in the eyes of the Lord or one of wickedness done in the eyes of the Lord. And it's either he was a good king because he did the right thing or he was an evil king because he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And look at what it says about King Ahab, Jezebel's husband. In verse 30 of 1 Kings 16, it says, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Here's another one in verse 33. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Israel had some really bad kings and the the Old Testament says this guy was the worst king. And actually one of the reasons why he was the worst is because Jezebel, his wife, was leading King Ahab astray. And what we get this picture of of Ahab is this weak, this spineless little man who is just so fearful. He can't confront his wife. He can't say anything to her. He's just letting her do, uh, lead him and all this evil stuff. We, we see this in 1 Kings 21, 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil on the side of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. A couple things that Jezebel did. She uh, essentially uh, brought about uh, the destruction of almost all the prophets in the Old Testament. So all these prophets of God, she had them murdered. Any prophets that she could get her hands on, she killed. And so Elijah and only a few other prophets were left by this time in history. And then what she did is she raised up her own prophets. She had 850 prophets, uh, some to Baal and some to these other pagan gods. And, and, And what she did is she actually convinced Ahab, the king of Israel, the king over God's people, to, uh, instead of worshiping at Yahweh's temple, she had Ahab build a temple to Baal and build an altar to Baal. And so the people of God were all led astray into sexual immorality and worshiping these other gods, making sacrifices to these other gods. And she was so terrifying that, that even Elijah, like on, on his best ministry day that he ever had in history, on his most profound ministry day, you remember this story if you grew up in church where he confronts the prophets of Baal and he says, hey, if your God is so powerful, then why don't you pray to him and ask, ask fire to fall down from heaven and consume this offering? And, and so the prophets do. They're like having a prophet showdown. You have Elijah. He's like, I'll pray to my God and you pray to Baal. And let's just see which God actually shows up and which God answers. So, so uh, the prophets of Baal are there and they're cutting themselves and they're crying out and chanting and praying and doing all these things. And they're there for hours and nothing is happening. No fire is falling down from heaven. And so Elijah starts taunting Baal. Like how, 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 how big of like a, a bold prophet do you have to be to just taunt in front of all these other prophets the God that they're worshiping? He's like, oh, you, you need to yell louder. They, your God can't hear you. His, he's got some ear problems. Or, or oh, he, maybe he's on vacation. That's what it is. He's on vacation. That's why he's not responding. Or maybe he's taking a nap. My favorite is he's probably going to the bathroom. Your, your God is probably using the bathroom right now. So he's a little busy. He's tired. 
tied up, and that's why he's not responding. And then after hours and hours of them praying and chanting, nothing happens. So Elijah, he's like, he's such an incredible, bold leader. What he does is he's like, pour water on this offering. All right, now do it again. Now do it one more time. So now this, this altar is like just soaked with water, and he prays, God, show up and show these people that you are the one true God. Boom, fire falls down from heaven, consumes the altar, consumes everything around it, consumes the, the burnt offering. And then Elijah has all those prophets killed. Now this is like his biggest, most effective, powerful day in ministry. Like he never has a day that's quite as powerful as that. This is the most powerful day of ministry he has where he's walking in such authority and power of God. And yet Jezebel gets word to him and she says, when I get my hands on you, I'm gonna kill you just like you killed my prophets. And Elijah, he freaks out. He runs away and he hides and he's terrified and, and God's like, here, let, let, me, let me give you some water and some meat. Just calm, take a nap and calm down, right? So how, how do you go from like the biggest day of ministry ever, most powerful day of ministry to running and hiding? It's because this woman Jezebel was a terror and Jesus is writing to this church and he says, that woman Jezebel, you tolerate her and she's leading some of you into sexual immorality into worshiping other gods. Now, l let me just say the obvious, like you need to understand this. There really wasn't a woman named Jezebel in, the, in this church, right? Uh, you don't name your child Adolf Hitler, right? You don't name your child uh, after the terror and the failures of your history. And so just like the people of God in the first century, like nobody would name their child Jezebel. But what Jesus is trying to say is just like Jezebel in the Old Testament, this, this woman who had set herself up as an authority and was leading people astray into sexual immorality, you now have this woman in your church, a real woman, uh, and, and it's kind of metaphorically seen as Jezebel. She's established herself as this prophetess. She's teaching things that are incongruent with what I've taught you. And now she's basically seducing some of you into sexual immorality and worshiping other gods. And you're tolerating her. This is Jesus' issue. So think about the different churches that he writes to. In Ephesus, he writes to them and he actually says, hey, you know what I love about your church? I love that um, the, the Nicolaitans are there and you don't tolerate their teaching. I love that about you because I can't stand their teaching either. Then he writes to the church at Pergamum and he says, you know, I have one problem with you. There are some of you there who hold to the teaching of Balaam and some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Then he writes to this church in Thyatira and he's like, we have big issues, major problems in your church because all of you are tolerating this woman who is leading people away in ways that are incongruent with what it is to be a follower of Jesus. See, here's the problem. Here's the problem in this church. If you boil it all down and ask the question, what is the issue in this church? The, the, the issue wasn't that they didn't have love because they had that. It wasn't that they didn't have service because they had that. It wasn't that they didn't have endurance in the face of opposition. They had all of that, but the one thing that this church didn't have was holiness. This church looked more like the world and the kingdom of the world than they did like Jesus and the kingdom of him, his king. So what is going on with this church? Well, Jesus is writing to them and he says, hey, you have all this other stuff, but you know what you don't have? You don't have holiness. You don't have holiness. Now, here's the thing about holiness. Holiness, in many ways, is God's vision for his church. Now, I gotta just pause here and define this because the minute I even said the word holiness, some of you checked out. You're like, what's on Facebook right now? Um, some of you are like, oh, here we go. This is where we get this vision of God that's uh, cranky and frustrated and unhappy. And anytime you smile, he's like, wipe that smile off your face. Be holy, 
right? And you can't be happy and holy, you know? And, and that's the vision of holiness that some of you have. Some of you, the minute you hear holiness, you, you almost have this like church PTSD is what I want to call it because you go up in church and, and this, this thing holiness was used as a bat to bludgeon you into legalism and doing all these things and just behave better and try harder and, and just stop screwing up as much and then God will really love you. And I just want you to know that when I talk about holiness, I'm not talking about any of those things. What is holiness? Holiness is when the disruptive power of the grace of God collides into your soul. It just does something to you where, where you cannot be the same. You see, holiness is what happens when, when you realize that when you were dead in your sin, when you were dead in your trespasses, when you had nothing to offer but your brokenness, that's when Jesus loved you. And he actually loved you so much he gave his life for you on a cross. And he absorbed the wrath of God in your place. And he rose again so that you could be forgiven and have a new identity. And now what he's doing is he's not just forgiving you, like, okay, my work here is done. I've forgiven you and, and, and go live your life. It's like he's forgiving you and he's pulling you out of darkness and he's bringing you into the light. And that does something different to the way that you and I live. It's like we're living in this way, in this way of sin and being our own authority. And Jesus comes in and the disruptive power of grace changes us, not overnight, and it's messy and it's long, but it changes us and we become different people. We start loving different things and we start wanting different things and we start craving the things that Jesus loves. And over time, it's slow, it's painful, it's messy, but we start to look more like Jesus than we do the world. That's what holiness is. And holiness is God's vision for his church. Sometimes I'll sit down with people over coffee and they're like, yeah, I just don't know what to do with my life and I don't know what the will of God is. I'm just trying to pray about the will of God and just trying, you know, I just don't know what he wants from me. And one of my favorite things to say is, well, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3 clearly tells you what his will is for your life. You ready for this? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So just start there. Like that doesn't answer who am I gonna marry and what job am I gonna get and where do I live and all these other things, but you know what his will is for you? It's your holiness. In fact, this is what the triune God is after and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is your holiness. Listen to this. Holiness is the purpose of the Father's election. Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Holiness is the purpose of the death of Jesus, the Son. It says this in Titus 2.11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared. Why? It's appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God has appeared. Jesus died to make you holy. Holiness is the purpose of the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gave his Holy Spirit to you. Here's the point. God wants to make you holy, and you can be a person that genuinely in your heart feels love for God and love for people. And you can be a person that genuinely feels love in such a way that drives you to sacrificial service. You can be a person that wants to serve, that wants to endure in the face of opposition. And yet all of that, you can have all of that 
and deep down have secret sin, have sin that is unrepentant sin in your life, have sin that you're saying, yeah, 95% of my heart you can have, Jesus, but there's about 5% that I get to be in control over. And I don't tell you how to live, so don't tell me how to live in these areas. And I'll do my own thing when it comes to my own sex ethic, and I get to call what's, what's right and wrong. I, I get to call balls and strikes in my own way, in my own life, and I'll generally submit to most of what you want, but here are some areas that I get to keep to. And Jesus is saying, no. No, 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 your problem, Thyatira, is that you actually tolerate this woman and because you tolerate her and don't confront her, just like King Ahab was too spineless to confront her, it's leading you into sexual immorality. And this leads to a very, very, very strong warning that Jesus has for the church. See, he comes to the church and he says, here's my problem, you tolerate this woman, Jezebel, and then he gives this very strong warning in verse 21. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. That word repent in Greek is metanoia. It means to turn around. He's saying, I gave her time to turn around. We've had an ongoing conversation and she's refused to listen. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. Verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and all of the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. If it's your first Sunday uh, to church in a long time, then you picked a great Sunday to show up. Thanks for being here. What in the world is Jesus talking about? I'm gonna throw this woman on a sickbed I'm gonna lead her into tribulation and people that follow her are gonna be thrown into tribulation and suffering. I'm gonna strike her children dead. This is all really encouraging stuff when you think about our baby dedications that we do as a church. It's like, what is happening here? What is being said here? Well, listen, Jesus isn't saying that he's going to take this woman and actually kill her babies. That's not what he's saying. He's using metaphor and he's using imagery to try to describe. He's saying this woman Jezebel or whoever she was, this woman in Thyatira who is leading people astray, she is always engaging people on a sex bed and her sin, I'm gonna allow it to lead her into a sick bed. This woman, she has uh, people that are following her and being led astray by her, her disciples, her children, if you will, and I'm gonna strike her children, her disciples dead. What Jesus is saying here is this. He's saying, I actually take this so seriously that I'm, I'm so committed to beauty. I'm so committed to love. I'm so committed to what is right and what is good, both in the world and in your church and in your life, that anything that threatens it, anything that threatens it, I will oppose with all my might. I'm gonna come in and I'm going to oppose you and I'm gonna allow your sin to lead where it always does, which is suffering and death, if you don't repent. This, what's being described here in many ways, is the doctrine of the discipline of God. And I just wanna say, this is one of the most beautiful dis doctrines that's often neglected and avoided and overlooked. And I know the tendency for a lot of us is just to disconnect and do the Thomas Jefferson thing and cut out sections of the Bible that we don't like or that don't fit our personal preferences. And, and, and I'm asking you, don't do that because Jesus here, he's actually coming to this church and he's coming to us today and he's coming with beautiful, loving discipline in our sin. What is discipline? Well, God's discipline, just a few things I want you to know about it, is fair and it's just. 
He says this, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. I gave her time, I've had an ongoing conversation, I've been wooing her back, come back to me. This woman in this church, come back to me, don't, don't, don't lead people astray, come back to me, come back to me. And she constantly, constantly refused every time Jesus invited her back. And so Jesus says, her time is up. She actually no longer has any opportunity to repent. I've, gave her, I've given her time and she refuses, so now I'm giving her what she wants. But there's still hope for her followers. It's fair and it's just. Here's the second thing about the discipline of God. It's rooted in his loving commitment. His discipline for you and me is actually rooted in his loving commitment. It's interesting, isn't it, in this passage that he, he says those who are committing adultery with her. Now, they're not physically committing adultery with her, but sometimes the way that the Bible describes our relationship with Yahweh in the Old Testament is one of marriage. And he says, listen, I'm not like your master. I'm not like your boss. You're not like my slave that I just command. Like the relationship that I want is a loving, committed marriage. And, and, and God is saying, I am the groom and, and the people of God are the bride. And, and the way that I would woo you and pursue you, it's not like a master with a slave. It's like, it's like a loving husband with his bride on his wedding day. And what he's saying is when you sin and when you rebel from me, you're actually not just committing some arbitrary uh, law breaking or some invisible list of rules that don't matter. Like what you're doing is you're actually committing adultery with me. You're fracturing our loving relationship. And so Jesus, he's coming and he's saying, listen, this, this, this discipline that I'm bringing to you, it's rooted in my loving commitment for you. It's because I'm so in love with you that we have to talk about this issue of your life. It's because I'm so committed to you that we have to deal with this thing that's incongruent with what it is to be a Christian. It's because I'm, I'm driven not by anger, but by love. I'm gonna be fierce when I come to you because I'm so committed to you and what is beautiful and what is right and what is good. Michael Reeves wrote a wonderful book on the Trinity called Delighting in the Trinity. And in that book, he says this. He says, the wrath of the triune God is exactly the opposite of a character blip or a nasty side in him. It is the proof of the sincerity of his love that he truly cares. His love is not mild-mannered and limp. It is livid, potent, and committed. And therein lies our hope. Through his wrath, the living God shows that he is truly loving. And through his wrath, he will destroy all devilry that we might enjoy him in a purified world, the home of righteousness. His wrath and his discipline and his his coming to us with hard words, it's not something that we should be afraid of. It's something that is a mark of his loving commitment. Here's the, the, the next thing I want you to see about the discipline of God is the discipline of God is serious and it's weighty. It's really serious and it's weighty. Jesus talks about taking this woman and throwing her on a sick bed. He talks about her disciples, her, her children, if you were, being thrown into tribulation. He talks about striking her children dead. Some of us, we read this and we're like, what is happening? What is, what is going on? Could he be serious? King Ahab died of a random war accident in the middle of a battle. Jezebel in the Old Testament, the actual Jezebel, was pushed over a balcony. She was then, uh, she was then trampled by horses and then her body was eaten by dogs. 
In the New Testament, you get to Acts chapter five, and what you see happening in Acts five is just such a beautiful, beautiful work of the early church when it came to generosity. The wealthy and people that had possessions, they were, they were even willing to sell their stuff and bring it and lay it at the feet of the apostles and say, here, give this to those who have need. It says that any who had need, uh, the, the wealthy would come and they would give away their stuff. And, and so you had just this, this mark of gospel generosity happening in the church where it said that there were no needs among the people of God. Can you imagine? No needs among the people of God. And then in Acts 5, you read about a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they thought, well, this is a great way to get in good graces with the apostles and to be well-known as a generous person. So they sold their field, but they kept back part of the proceeds, and they gave the rest to the, the apostles and, and what God did in response to their hypocrisy, in response to them wanting to just do an act to make other people think, wow, look how generous I am. Both Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. Actually, the very first recorded youth group event was burying Ananias and Sapphira, right? You know, it's like, I don't know if that's what we'd recommend philosophically as the start of a great youth program, but like, hey, Tyler Lindsay, can you bring some young folks in and we have some people to bury? But that's what happened in Acts 5. The Corinthian church, the Lord's Supper was supposed to be this beautiful place where uh, economic differences were laid aside where ethnic differences were laid aside. And Jesus, the great equalizer, brought all people together, whether you're rich or poor, white or black, uh, wealthy or, it didn't matter. You came together and all of us got a feast on the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. And they'd hold this feast in the early church. It was, it was called a love feast. And, and they would eat together. And it was meant for the poor especially to come and be able to eat right alongside of the wealthy. And the Corinthian church was so messed up. Paul writes to him and he says, listen, you are forgetting the heart of this table. And now what's happening is the wealthy are coming in and they're eating all of the food so that the poor people, by the time they show up to church, there's nothing left. You are discriminating against the poor and in his anger and in his justice and in his discipline, God was actually killing certain people in the Corinthian church. It says this is why some of you are dying. The Ephesian church, 1 Timothy 1.20, we read this. The apostle Paul hands over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Can you imagine like a church setting in Ephesus? All right, folks, it was great having you at worship this morning. Thanks for being with us. Don't forget that tonight at five o'clock, we have our serving community gathering. Hope to see you there. Also, remember that we have officially handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Hope to see you next week. We'll see you soon. What in the world? is being said here by these hard words from Jesus. Now here's what I did. So, some of you, by the way, are you're judging me and how I'm teaching this. Can you just put yourself in my shoes for just a minute? What would you do if this was the text that you had to preach? All right, have some grace. Here's what Jesus is doing. I just gave you some extreme examples. Most of the time, the discipline of God is not that extreme. Most of the time, it's not people dying. Most of the time, it's a friend coming to you saying, hey brother, I'm concerned with this area of your life. Most of the time it's a sister saying, hey, I see something in you and it's incongruent with what it is to follow Jesus. And if you don't learn to listen to the little things that Jesus says, then he has to get louder and louder and louder and louder. And often the discipline of God is you go through something that's difficult or painful and he's reminding you, hey, I am who you need and I am what you want. I love the words of Tim Keller. He says, the Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach us that every sin will bring us into difficulty. 
And what he's doing when we get brought into difficulty as a result of our own sin is he's reminding us, he's loving us, he's disciplining us. Last thing I want you to know about the discipline of God is that it's restorative in nature. It's restorative in nature. Uh, The purpose of his discipline isn't to push you out, it's to bring you closer. The purpose of his discipline isn't to shame you, it's to deal with the shame that you carry. The purpose of his discipline is he is a father who loves his kids. And have you ever met a, a child who grew up in a home where they never had any discipline? They don't talk like this, man, I just love the freedom I had. I just loved how amazing it was. I could do whatever I want. No, 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 none of them say that. They say, I wish my parents would have really cared and I wish they would have been there when I needed them most. There's a word for that. It's called neglect. And father, the father, uh, God the father of us as his kids, he's not a father who neglects his children. But out of love, he disciplines us. Listen to this from Hebrews 12. It says, it is for our discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom uh, whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Did you hear that? The scary thing isn't to not receive discipline or to receive discipline the scariest thing that could happen is to never receive discipline. He says, if you're a child, you get discipline. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's where you say amen. Uh, But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. His discipline is restorative. It's a father coming to his children saying, I love you. And because I love you, we have to talk about this. We have to talk about this. And he's giving the followers of this Jezebel, this metaphorical Jezebel, time to repent. Jezebel, it's too late. But he says, for those who are following her, there's still time. There's still time to repent. And then he holds out this promise. And and this is how he closes it in verse 24. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you another burden. He's, He's not asking for anything else from you. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Just keep doing what you're doing, he's saying. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The promise that Jesus gives his people is amazing. He gives them the promise of authority and power. He says, you're gonna reign with me over the new earth one day. Now think about this. If you're in Thyatira, that's a really big deal to you because you live in a city where you've been marginalized and pushed to the fringes. And and, and if you can't be in a trade guild, then you really don't have a voice in society. And Jesus writes to this church and he says, hold fast and stay, walk in my holiness and stay close to me. And if you do, you will one day reign over the entire earth with me. And actually what he's teaching them to do is by not tolerating this Jezebel, by by saying, all right, we're done with your false teaching and we're done with living in ways that are incongruent with Jesus, by not tolerating that, uh, what's happening with this church is they're learning what it is to faithfully rule over the church. And that's like a training ground for what it is to one day rule over the entire earth. Learn to rule over the church and learn to rule over it well. So that way one day when I come and I give you authority and power, you're gonna rule well over the entire nations. This is what Jesus says 
to his people. So uh, what are the implications of this? Well, let me just give you a few things and then we'll wrap it up and call it a day. Here, here's, as I prayed through this and I thought about this text and I thought about our church and our people, like what do we need to hear coming out of this passage? Just a few things landed heavy on my heart that I wanted to be sure and send you away. Here's the first. I want you to resist worldliness. Now real quick on this, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, you're welcome to be here as long as you want. We're so glad you're here. And, and, and you don't have to live like us. We're just glad that you're around and you're always welcome. We hope that one day you come to know Jesus and we're gonna walk with you regardless either way. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I wanna specifically tell you to resist worldliness. Now, what I mean by that is don't like, I'm not asking you to pull out of the world. I'm not asking you to like start uh, functioning like an Amish person and churning your own butter and throwing away your iPhone, although that may not be a terrible idea to throw away your iPhone. You know, like what, I, what I'm not saying is pull out of society and, and pull out of culture and reject it altogether. What I'm saying is as you live in the world, reject worldliness. What is worldliness? Jerry Bridges says this. He says, the sin of worldliness is a preoccupation with the things of this temporal life. It's accepting and going along with the views and practices of society around us without discerning if they're biblical. I believe that the key to our tendencies toward worldliness lies primarily in the two words, going along. We simply go along with the values and practices of society. Where are you in your life just going along? And you're just kind of intaking culture like crazy and you're not assessing, you're not judging, you're not being critical. Where are you just going along? Evan Roberts was a, a man that would basically ask a series of questions back in the 1800s. He would ask a series of questions to kind of prep people for revival, for a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And one of the questions that he would ask them, he would say, are there any doubtful habits in your life? I wanna ask you that. Are there any doubtful habits in your life? See, it's not just blatant conscious sin that we need to be aware of. It's even doubtful habits. It's things that we do that are questionable. And, and I know this makes me sound dated and old and old-fashioned, but it's like even the things that we watch and even the things that we intake and even the things that we do and where we go and like, are there any doubtful habits in our life? You should be aware of that. Reject worldliness. Don't just go along with what everybody else is doing. Number two, I think an implication for us is to learn to live in the fear of the Lord. By the way, I'm just driving this home. If you're like, man, this is heavy. Yep, it is, and I'm just going for it, all right? This is my one shot, so I'm just gonna take it. Learn to live in the fear of the Lord. Revelation 2.23 says that Jesus is the one who searches mind and heart. In Acts, Jesus is called, in Greek, it's cardionostis, it's heart knower in the book of Acts. Jesus is the one who knows your heart not just your actions, not just these churches. Jesus knows you and your innermost thoughts and your temptations and your heart. Learn to live in the fear of the Lord. Do you live as if Jesus knows and sees and wants to speak with you about every single thing in you, not because he's nitpicky, but because he's a God of mercy and love and grace and he really wants you to live in a way that's following after him towards life. Live in the fear of the Lord. John Stott, in one of my favorite books of all time, The Cross of Christ, says, there's so much shallowness and levity among us. Prophets and psalmists would probably say of us that there is no fear of God before their eyes. In public worship, our habit is to slouch or to squat. 
We do not kneel nowadays, let alone prostrate ourselves in humility before God. It is more characteristic of us to clap our hands with joy than to blush with shame or tears. We saunter up to God to claim his patronage and friendship. It does not occur to us that he might send us away. We need to hear again the Apostle Peter's sobering words. Since you call on a father who judges each man's works impartially, live your lives in reverent fear. In other words, if we dare to call our judge our father, we must beware of presuming on him. We learn to appreciate the access to God, which Christ has won for us only after we have first seen God's inaccessibility to sinners. We can cry hallelujah with, with authenticity only after we have first cried, woe is me for I am lost. In Dale's words, it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe that sin provokes the wrath of God. Friends, learn to live in the fear of the Lord. If you wonder why your heart is so hard, why you're so cold, why you are so dead, and why your life looks just like the lives of people that do not claim the name of Jesus, maybe it's because you've forgotten that he is the heart knower, knower that has invited you into a life of holiness by grace. And then thirdly and finally, I wanna encourage you to break the fear of confrontation. If we're gonna live as a people that is unique and set apart, that actually has something beautiful to offer our city, that actually is salt and light to people in a world of darkness, if we're gonna have something to offer, we have to learn to break the fear of confrontation. How many of you love confronting people? It's just like your favorite thing. Like, I cannot wait. By the way, if you wanted to raise your hand, there's something profoundly wrong with you and you need counseling, right? Some of you need to hear, uh, break the fear of always having to confront, right? Some of you, that's your problem. But for the most of us, most of us that like are normal, nice people, um, for us, the problem is actually confrontation. And we're so, so fearful of stepping into the life of someone else and saying, hey, I need to talk with you about this. Why do we not do this? Well, some of us lack integrity in our personal lives, so it's like, well, I can't confront you because there's stuff in my life that's incongruent and I'd be a hypocrite to confront you with what I also have in me. There's a lack of knowledge. Sometimes it's like, well, I don't know what I would say and what if they argue back and what if they say, but here are 12 reasons why theologically you're wrong and ah, so fear of knowledge, we don't confront. Maybe it's lack of time. You're like, man, if I talk to that person about them sleeping together, man, that's, that's gonna cost so much time and messiness and complexity in my life. If I talk to my coworker about that, that's gonna, be, that's gonna be messy and difficult and it's gonna take time. Lack of confidence. Who am I to say? What, what if they reject me? What if, what if it hurts our friendship? And then the biggest reason why we don't confront others is a lack of love. We just don't love. Because Jesus, out of an overwhelming sense of love for his church, he says, here's some things you're killing it at but I have this against you. You have tolerated this woman. You have not confronted her. And now there are people that are just living in sexual immorality that's incongruent with what it is to be a follower of Jesus. I'm inviting you to repent. Break the fear of confrontation so that our church can continue to grow as a church that walks in the image of Jesus as salt and light.